Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cutting In From The Left. I'm your host, Tom Wise, and I've got with me Luis Antonio Streeter. How are you doing, Luis? Hi, Tom. Just about over Sunday night. I think I'll be choking through the tears on this one, but pleased to be back again. Yeah, we are back again after just over a month away. I feel like everything just just went away during the Euros. Had to fully focus on that. I stopped running. I stopped doing any reading of any kind. We stopped recording. All about watching the football and getting back into the pub, which was pretty great. This was England's tournament. Made it to their first final in 55 years. They faced an Italy team. We'd never seen an Italy team this exciting before, scoring as many goals as they did not sitting back and fouling teams to death. They faced each other in the final on Sunday. Didn't go to plan from an English point of view. It went to penalties and England ended up being on the losing side of that. But there's a lot of positives to take. First of all, I mean, we weren't together for this game. So I want to know like, what, what were you feeling, mate, at the time? How, how were you taking it? Um, I think, well, obviously during the match itself, really excited. The build-up I thought was great. I mean, obviously some people kind of reported on the unsavoury scenes around Wembley and other places, but to be honest, like being at, at, at the pub we were at, at least in terms of the atmosphere, it was really lively, really great. Um, but everyone was really kind of friendly and welcoming as well. There was no kind of bad blood or anything, which is great to see too. Um, and then obviously, I think through the match, what a great start. I think everyone, you know, went mad on the on the shore goal. And then throughout, I feel like the nerves started to kick in and definitely from my point of view, and we can look at it a bit further, but just because of the timidity I felt of some of England's play, perhaps not keeping the ball well enough, which Gareth Southgate has already alluded to, I think. But yeah, and then as it went on, I feel like we had less and less belief that England were going to win it, especially obviously after the Italian equaliser. And we, yeah, when it came to penalties... You can talk through penalties to death at the end of the day. It's a little bit of a lottery. I mean, obviously, a, a gutting result to take, but I think, you know, it might be a cliche, but definitely very proud of the players. I feel overall they did very well. I do feel that Southgate got a few things wrong in the final. Having said that, he's probably done better than any England manager has for a long, long time in terms of navigating these knockout rounds. So I don't think you can be too critical of him, especially with his lack of big game experience really in general. So, yeah, I think obviously a gutting result to take. But at the end of the day, I mean, the next tournament is really not that far away, especially with it being a winter tournament 2022. I think the potential is there for England to really build on this. And yeah, I don't think they're far off the, uh, the biggest sides or the best sides around at this point in time as well. So that's something to take from it as well. Yeah, I'm I'm happy because that Ipswich sandwich of managers of Alf Ramsey and Bobby Robson has finally been sort of broken apart. I think we can say <laughs> Southgate Southgate probably deserves to be like the second most successful England manager now after a great 2018 World Cup, getting to the semis and obviously making the final of this. Great start for England, obviously, like you say, Luke Shaw's goal uh, from right wing back to left wing back. It was really good. I mean, what a time to score your first ever England goal. I think around the half hour mark, the game sort of changed and Italy were having a lot more of the ball. Um, Chiesa had a shot that sort of flashed wide of the post when it was a bit like, I think he just he, he just was too strong for Declan Rice and managed to get his shot away, which was a bit of a worry, a bit of a sign of things to come. Second half, I'd have said it was all Italy. England just couldn't get out of the ball. They took Immobile off, who I think was probably the poorest player that they had on the pitch. They took him off and 
that meant Insignia could move from the left wing into the middle. And I thought that was like a great move for by Mancini because England just couldn't pick Insignia up. So that was really dangerous. They kept dropping deeper and deeper England. And eventually that equaliser came from Benucci. Uh, he capitalised from a corner that England couldn't get rid of. Then England finally made a change. They they went from this 3-4-3, which I don't think was working. I don't think anyone thought was working, to a 4-3-3. Got Saka on. Henderson came on for Rice. I thought extra time England looked a little bit better. I thought Grealish probably came on a bit late. I think he should have come on at the start of extra time. Or, or even before that, during the normal time. And then bringing Sancho and Rashford on in the 120th minute just for penalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you say, like we can't talk about, we could talk about penalties till the cows come home. But I just, I think to put two lads on who have barely kicked a ball this tournament, it just, it just seemed kind of strange. But you know, he he had his reasons, and and he did say that they were his five takers. You know, so I guess you can't really argue with that, can you? Yeah, I think if he was going to do that, I think he should have brought them on earlier, let them get a few touches under their belt. So I really don't think someone coming on cold to take penalties is the right approach. I don't think bringing on players to take penalties full stop is necessarily a good idea. Um, I think there's already been a couple of players this tournament who've missed them who are seemingly designed to take them. I think um, Emedi for Switzerland and Rodri for Spain are the two that I can pick out who seem to come on basically full penalties, but then both missed. So I don't really think it's, it's a winning strategy. I think you just stick with players who are been, been on the pitch they're kind of they're bloody even if they're a bit tired I think it makes more sense to have someone there that's a little bit tired but can still obviously walk up to the penalty spot and, and put a penalty away as opposed to someone who's coming in clean for fresh to the game and yeah it's, it's almost overthinking it a little bit because they know they've been brought on to, to do this one thing and I don't think it's going to necessarily help them in terms of pressure as well so yeah I don't really think it was the right move but obviously you know hindsight is twenty twenty as well it, it had pulled it off you know we'd have been praising him for those subs but there was some interesting discussion about penalty shootouts in general I mean obviously it can come across as a little bit of a a bitter loser thing on talking about shootouts having just lost one and say oh we should maybe amend them or get rid of them I think for a while people have been talking about introducing the ABBA system where um, you don't just have one team which always takes first, which is statistically proven to be quite a big advantage. I think um, there's a study, and I know um, I think it's Ben Littleton on Twitter who kind of posts about this quite a lot. He has a study in terms of, I think, 60% of the time, the team who kicks first wins, which is, you know, statistically a very big advantage to have. And that's just off the flip of a coin, basically. So it does strike me that it's not quite the fairest system. And I noticed some, for example, followers of American sports were saying, it would be a little bit strange if an NBA playoff final was decided through a free throw competition. It would be sort of the equivalent. So, yeah, maybe that is something that they could look at uh, in terms of amending that a little bit or thinking about alternatives. It does seem a little bit unfair to the players as well who, who miss a penalty when so much of it is down to, to inches as well, as you saw with uh, with Rashford's penalty, which could have been a great pen. It wasn't really for for a couple of inches. Uh, so something to think about, I think. I don't think you can say that Italy didn't deserve to win the final. I thought they were the better team. Whether they're overwhelmingly the best team of the tournament, I think there were some narratives coming out about that. But I don't think they were overall particularly impressive against some of the bigger sides. I thought Spain outplayed them in the semi-final, for instance. I mean, they did enough. And they have that winning mentality, which I think exemplified in Bonucci and Chiellini. 
and they're not going to care what everyone else thinks about their style of play or their physicality or staying down on the floor like Immobile did um, when he was looking to get a pen and getting straight back up. I mean, they do what they need to do to win. Uh, and, you know, you can't really fault them for that. Yeah, I think this Italy team, It was if it was anyone but England in the final, I think a lot of neutrals would have been supporting Italy, really, because uh, although, like you say, they didn't necessarily take the better teams apart, they were just so good in the group stage. You know, those first two games, winning them both 3-0, uh, I think they scored seven goals overall uh, in their three games, didn't let any in. Like, they were just, they were so good to watch. And I think the fact that we're so used to an Italy team that, is just so turgid and and dirty and it was so it was like a breath of fresh air really and I do think Mancini is a bit of a legend really I think his time at Man City his time at Leicester I think he came across really well over here so there is a little bit of you know he he's just cool those suit jackets as well I mean they they deserve <laughs> to win they deserve to win something for that alone they just did what was necessary in this game that that Chiellini tug on on Bakayo Saka it's just you know, as as people that like we watch football obviously very regularly, and and nothing against people that are just getting into football or like they really enjoy this tournament and they don't really have a club or anything like that. But there were some very funny takes on social media about like how <laughs> how this this should be like a red card, like banned for life, lock him away, throw away the key, sort of thing. I just I think as people that that are very into their football, like, I just can't help but be like, wow, that is like an amazing piece of like tactical fouling. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, obviously after like eight points on Sunday, you're like, you know, send them off each dirty band for life. But when you wake up in the cold light of them, it's, it's a yellow card that he's pulled him back. Um, it's obviously very cynical, but it's it's what you got to do in that situation. I mean, you can't really fault him for it as a defender, and that exemplifies the winning mentality. As I said, I mean. You always see that with the great, in particular, I would say probably Italian, the Argentinian teams who know how to have that extra little sort of niggling sort of aggressiveness, but not not quite enough to catch the ref's attention in a way that you're going to get sent off for it. That's the line, the dividing line between winners and losers a lot of the time. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a red card. <laughs> no, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you said that. Kalini Benucci for two pretty old stages now like they they played so well I thought Emerson having to come in at uh, left back left wing back for Spinazzola who you know for me was up there as one of the players of the tournament before he got injured I think Emerson played really well both in the semi and in the final obviously Jorginho's had like the the year of his career pretty much winning the Champions League and the Euros now although what what did you think about um, about his foul in extra time like do you think that was a red Again, I don't think it's probably, a, it's not really a red card, I'd say. A little bit more borderline, probably that one, and the Chiellini one. But uh, yeah, I would lean on the side of saying it's not a red card. To me, it didn't seem that he was, he wasn't putting all his weight down. So, you know, he was sort of just, he was in an awkward position. And I'm, you know, that weren't really a red, to be honest. I think it just depended what state you're in Sunday night. Like you're obviously at the pub, like, like you say, several points deep. So I could see why, like, you'd have taken it worse than me. But I, I was at home and I'd had a few cans and it was almost like as soon as Italy won the shootout, it was just a bit like, well, they, I just thought they played really well. I couldn't really fault England. I thought the well, when they went out in 2018 of the World Cup, it was a bit like, this is the closest they've ever got or ever will get in my lifetime sort of thing. Whereas because the World Cup is only like 18 months away or whatever, I just, I think this England team is going to do well and I think they can continue to do well. I, I don't see this as like the end of the journey or anything. Like most of these players will will probably be in the World Cup squad 
uh, next year, plus a couple mm-hmm. others, maybe minus the likes of, you know, Akaya Walker or somebody like that, considering we have about 400 right backs. I didn't almost take it as, as hard as I should have, but, but yeah, it, it, was, it was an interesting game. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, I think just looking back the next day, it was probably more bittersweet than sort of complete sort of sadness or depression or anything like that. I think um, it would be different, as you say, if it felt like it was the end of a run. But because all the players are so young, really, I mean, one of the youngest squads in the, in the whole tournament, you don't feel like it was the end of something, but, you know, it could really be kind of springing water to be even better. And you've got players like um, Jude Bellingham, who didn't have too many minutes this tournament, but when he did, he, he impressed. He's definitely one for the future, and you've got other players coming through and join him. So, yeah, there's a lot to look forward to in the plans. Better give a couple of minutes to the awful abuse that Sancho, Saka, Rashford suffered after missing their penalties. I know it's something that we've talked at in length before, like several episodes, but I've seen like a, either a Change UK or a government petition flying around about how we need to like to bring in identification and stuff like this. And it just, I know it all means well, but it just kind of makes me cringe a little bit because it's just a terrible, terrible idea. Tell everyone why this is such a terrible <laughs> idea. I mean, it's one word, Facebook. I mean, Facebook is probably the most racist social media platform out there. And I mean, everyone's got their own name on there with their picture of their kids and their dog. And they're saying stuff, you know, like go home or send them back. And it's like, anonymity isn't the issue here. These, these opinions exist in society. And these are people who, you know, I mean, there was, that, I think, guy who worked for Savills, sort of the real estate uh, agents, was kind of called out for it specifically. Uh, and then they, they put about sort of a mealy mouth statement saying he might have been hacked. I don't think he was hacked sort of five minutes after the match to, to post that. Uh, seems like a big coincidence to me. We, we've emphasized the point and it's been emphasized, you know, probably much better by, by other people much smarter than me. It's it's an overall society issue. You can't tackle it by tackling social media. You can't tackle it by tackling football. You've got to look at the wider trends in society, the material trends, and look who's encouraging the media. I mean, it's not the social media where these opinions are sort of disseminated uh, in a form that really appeals to, for example, older people in general who receive their media from the Sun or the Daily Mail or any number of other kind of tabloid newspapers or other types of newspapers indeed who spread these opinions and have done so for decades uh, with impunity without any really regulatory oversight. So why are you saying you want to regulate people on social media when these people have been allowed to, to do this you know, including our own prime minister as a columnist, infamously writing about, you know, watermelons and uh, about children in Africa in, in certain terms. This is stuff that exists in, in the broad mainstream of what we'd call British media and politics uh, among conservative MPs, among the people in the highest ranks of the media. So, yeah, what, why are we focusing on sort of anonymous posters? Now we should really be focusing on the stuff that exists in, in our own institutions and has been encouraged and allowed to run rampant. And it's, you know, it's coming home to roost because you can, if you say this stuff for 20 years, if you say stuff about the immigrants coming over to steal your jobs, the immigrants coming over to change your way of life, black people in this country are, are a threat, threat to our institutions. They're a threat to what you consider to be an idealized image of the UK. If you say that enough, people are going to believe it because they've got nothing else to believe you're selling a dominant media narrative in this country. Um, so there's no way to fix that without getting to the heart of that. Uh, so if you want an actually regulatory position on something, 
and I would say, why don't we regulate who controls or owns our media? What do they have to get out of it? Can we have certain standards that are imposed, not as a curb to freedom of speech, but rather as a curb to saying that certain people who own 80 or 90% of the media aren't allowed to put across these opinions as if they were fact, as opposed to tackling you know, the scourge of, of people who are who are by first name, bunch of numbers on Twitter, after all, you know, they exist because and not despite of the dominant media culture in this country. And, you know, I, I mean, it really kind of boiled my blood a little bit to see the sun coming out and being like, oh, we, we, we stand by Saka, Sancho and Rashford. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure back, you know, in a few weeks time, once the Premier season starts up, I'm sure they'll be back to posting articles about their, uh, their flash houses or having to buy a, a car for their mother and how awful that is. Take that with a pinch of salt. If this was ever introduced, having to have some form of identification, you know, you have to think of the ramifications for, you know, like trans people or other marginalised groups of people, like sex workers and stuff like that. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's just a, a terrible idea. And, you know, like I say, I know people mean well, but it is they need to get to the root of the problem. Um, and this will not sort it out. Let's move on and we'll now talk about our favourite uh, moments and non-England moments of Euro 2020. Obviously, it was a great tournament for the Free Lions, but it was also memorable in a lot of other ways. We saw Finland win a game at their first ever European Championships. We saw Germany clinging on to a draw with Hungary in their, their final Group F game. I don't think we've seen them struggle as much as we did this tournament. And we saw Scotland back at a tournament for the first time since 1998. What players stood out for you? Like players maybe that uh, didn't know loads about beforehand? Um, for one in general who stood out to me was, I'm sure to a lot of people, was uh, Damsgaard of Denmark. You know, plays for, uh, for Sampdoria as an attacking midfielder, I think, off the left as well. And definitely not a player that I necessarily come across at a ton before um, I'd saw the tournament. But, you know, he, he's really kind of an inventive player. Like, he always wanted the ball, always swing for it. Um, you know, scored that great free kick goal against England and scored a great goal earlier in the tournament as well, I think, against Russia. And, yeah, he just looked like a live where he looked like a, a really high-quality player. It seems like Sampdoria is determined to keep him from another season, uh, which is good on them. Yeah, he was really impressive, I thought. Uh, obviously, you know, Denmark as a whole, the great stories of the tournament. Uh, obviously, such a great relief for everyone to, to see Christian Eriksen all right in that spirit that kind of propelled them a little bit. But, you know, just not just their spirit. I mean, they, they played really well. They were really solid. Hoiberg was one of the players of the tournament. So a lot to kind of impress about that Denmark team. I thought Hungary in general as well. A lot of unfancied players in there, uh, but really fought hard and, and showed an attacking threat, as you say, against Germany too. Scored a couple of goals. I thought they were... They were quite impressive as well. I think helped by their home crowd in the other couple of games as well. But in that game, you know, obviously a little bit different for them, but still managed to put in a, a good performance. In terms of other players, I think obviously Pedri for Spain was highly impressive. Um, I thought Sarabia did really well for them as well, which I think hasn't been mentioned too much. How much of a loss he was for them in the semi-final actually against Italy. I thought he would have made a real difference for them if he'd been on the pitch. because I thought he looked like the Spain's most most ruthless player in terms of being able to put away a chance, find that space in the area, something they lacked a little bit perhaps from some of the other players. So he really impressed me as well as with Pedri. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, some of those kind of obvious choices, 
but I think definitely, you know, a myriad of players really you could look at and say, perhaps clubs in Europe will, will be looking at them, trying to snap them up, see who's playing well. There's obviously a risk to, to judge a player based on one tournament, um, as I'm sure it's been found out many a time in the past by a Premier League club, thinking of a El Hadjouf and Salif Diaw for Liverpool in particular. Yeah, I think uh, Cleverson as well. 2002 World Cup winner couldn't quite replicate it for Man United, was that, if I recall. Yeah, and someone like, for example, Patrick Schick, because you've got to think as a club, he's had a slightly underwhelming club career. Obviously, he looks excellent in the Euros and he's got talent. Um, but you think, you know, he couldn't quite cut it at Roma. At Leipzig, his time there has been, you know, really coming off the bench and uh, not necessarily able to establish him in a side which doesn't really have a great established striker anymore after Werner left. He still wasn't really able to, to fit in there as much. So you think, you know, he's obviously a great player in terms of his talent. He can do it, he can turn it on. Do you really trust him as a club to spend 30 million on him? You know, it was probably his price after a good Euros. So, it's, you know, it's a tricky decision uh, to make, but perhaps, you know, you should think less about that in a sense and just think about, you know, enjoying a great player's performance in, a, in an international tournament rather than thinking about their their club transfer prospects, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. If you think of Hamas Rodriguez, like Diego Forlan, at past World Cups, like I, I don't think the transfers or moves they made after those tournaments, they ever really replicated that, the form they did uh, over those summers. But shit going to West Ham would just be the most West Ham thing ever, I think. And then him scoring, you know, less than 10 goals or whatever next year. Denzel Dumfries was someone that I thought, um, mm. the, the fullback for the Netherlands, I think he scored in the first two games. Uh, he looked really good. I think he's being linked with Everton at the minute, which don't, I th- almost think he deserves something better than that, to be honest. Yeah, he, he looks really good. And s- someone who I think a lot of people would have thought was past it, I think Sergio Busquets deserves a mention, uh, just for how well he played in that semi-final. Like, he completely like, controlled the midfield. And I've got to give it to you, mate. You did say that Spain would be uh, would be going a lot further than a lot of people thought. Yeah, I thought they just had that technical quality there. And I think they very much showed it. Great for if we don't talk about my other prediction of Turkey, given how poor they were. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say they have a, the next tournament will be the one. <laughs> I was talking earlier um, and I said that whoever convinced the world that Turkey were the dark horses, I mean, he, what what a beautiful job he did. Because everybody, everybody thought that, didn't they? And they just, they were just so bad. Yeah, I still don't really know what happened to them they seem to just mentally collapse I guess it is quite a young team I think actually it might be the youngest in the tournament but still I mean yeah pretty abject uh, to be honest but going back to I think to sort of veteran midfielder as well uh, I thought Modric though I don't think Croatia were particularly impressive I thought Modric was really holding that team together basically yanked them to qualifying from the group of that performance against Scotland so I thought he was really kind of an example of what midfielder can do to just take their team across the finish line, get them as far as he did at least. So yeah, I thought he was quite impressive, which, you know, as you're saying, I always get to a lot of people perhaps thought he was a bit over the hill by now, but uh, I think at the age of, you know, 35, 36, still very much capable. That goal against Scotland as well, the outside the foot one was just beautiful. Like one of my favourite goals of the tournament, obviously Schicks against Scotland was pretty mad. David Marshall diving into the net, like made it even funnier. Um, Sam's guards a couple of goals as well, which are very good. 
I really liked the Lewandowski header against Spain. I mean, that was just a good old-fashioned like centre forwards header. Yeah, that was that was a good goal. Yeah, I thought a couple of the Spain sort of team goals as well, particularly against Slovakia, were quite nice. Yeah, it was about time, weren't it? They absolutely battered somebody after the the couple of draws they had in their first two games. And the Morata's finish as well against um, Croatia. Apologies, but in fact, that was an excellent goal. While the Euros was going on, we also had the big continental competition in South America, the Copa America. Saturday night, we had Argentina against Brazil in their first meeting in the Copa America final since 2007. Argentina were to be the victors thanks to a lovely finish from Angel Di Maria. Yeah, but there were some wild celebrations uh, in Buenos Aires that I saw in the main square. And um, thought quite amusingly as well, a slight tangent, but um, in terms of people trying to betray um, the current, most assuredly CIA-backed protests in Cuba. And I saw someone posting a video of the uh, Argentina celebrations trying to claim that it was protests in Cuba, which is quite funny when they were, I think, quite clearly in the video chanting Messi. So not, not their most effective side up there. Try again next time, lads. I saw that. I saw that. And I also saw uh, there was loads of photos of Miami and that was meant to be Cubans like furious in Havana. How much Copa America did you get to see? And, and how, how did Ecuador do? Too much, really, from my perspective, watching Ecuador in that tournament. But interestingly, I think uh, an Ecuador player did get into the team of the tournament. So Pérez Estupiñán, that left-back, he's a Villarreal left-back. He did have a very good tournament. He's an excellent player going forward. Both the Ecuador fullbacks are uh, very offensive. I think that was a slight problem for them actually in the tournament. Often got caught in in behind. But yeah, I think Ecuador really weird side this tournament because we I felt like we could have won every game that we were in, but we didn't actually win any of them. So I mean, we got paid back two two by Peru, for instance. Uh, got paid back by Venezuela as well. Got a very creditable draw against Brazil in the final game of the group stage uh, as well. Yeah, and it just felt like there was that extra bit lacking. I think some very talented players in that team, but not really the cohesion there or the concentration. I gave away quite a few leads late on as well, uh, which is a big issue. And I feel that's perhaps also, I guess, the general point about the tournament is that you think it's like the talent is there, and obviously is there in South America. But when you look at the Euros, it just seems to be a lot more tactical cohesion and something about the general gameplay which feels a lot more, I guess you'd say, polished. Probably helped by the quality of the pitches as well. I'd say definitely better in Europe. But also just that general sense that every side had a little bit more control and discipline 
and knew what they wanted to do with the ball, knew what they wanted to do off the ball in terms of their pressing as well, a little bit less haphazard. Not the sense there was someone in a position or two who was really not up to that level. You know, obviously Brazil and Argentina in the centre, slight cut above the other teams in the competition. Where do you feel like there is, unfortunately, that golfing class probably between the Euros and the Copa America, which makes it, you know, obviously it's still a spectacle and Argentina fans will be delighted to have won it. But it's not really quite at that same level of, of polish, certainly, probably of quality overall. Yeah, so this obviously was the Copa America that only got confirmed like in the in the couple of weeks before it was even kicking off that it was even going to take place. Uh, you know, Brazil took over the reins after Argentina and Colombia couldn't do it. And yeah, I mean, I I didn't watch as so much as you. I saw a few games. I think for me, one of the biggest stories was obviously Ben Belton Diaz <laughs> um, <laughs> making his debut and and scoring some goals for Chile. Um, obviously, he's a Blackburn Rovers striker. He was born in Stoke, but his mum's from Chile. Qualifies him for them. And yeah, he he was a bit of an icon in Chile. Uh, there were some great videos of of him. I want to say, like, I'm not, I obviously don't speak Spanish, but I want to say he was getting roasted by a lot of his teammates. Yeah, some friendly banter, I think. Uh, I think it was particularly uh, Mauricio Isla who was kind of posting a lot of the videos on uh on social media but yeah just having a little bit of fun with them it seemed but yeah it looks like he, he got on well with all of them and um i don't think speaks much spanish at all but it seems like uh yeah they, they really took him to their hearts nice to see yes yeah, and i think he's been linked now with a uh, move to Leeds united after playing so well so good luck to him and then the other big story was the semi-final between argentina and colombia that went to penalties Emmy Martinez, like what a, what? How would you say? Eighteen months he's had. Like he's gone from mm. from being the Arsenal like backup for ten years, and he's now Aston Villa's main keeper. He's now won a Copa America, but this shootout, I, his trash talk was just in, <laughs> insane. Like how how good was that? How good was that to see? Oh, that was great. I think he uh, he killed it. I think there was a a petition or. What government minister in Colombia afterwards, he was sort of saying that he was committing a sort of sexist hate crimes by one of his gestures, um, so which really shows he really rattled them. And I think there's also a video of Messi going to Mina because Mina had done a dance after scoring a penalty. It's how, how do you like dancing now? Uh, so, yeah, the Argentinians very much continuing their tradition of being very snide, but, you know, in a quite a likable way almost. And then beating Brazil in the final in Brazil. I mean, there's nothing more likable than that, really, is there? We, we didn't want Brazil to win, <laughs> did we? No, exactly. And um, no, arguably, Brazil, the better team in that final, definitely in some stretches. But I mean, a lovely goal to win it. And yeah, can't really fault them. The celebrations. Yeah, we don't really want Brazil winning it again. Even though, you know, obviously Argentina, Juggernaut, but hadn't won it in quite a while. So, uh, so nice to see that too. I think overall... It's an entertaining tournament in some ways, but I feel like the lack of fans really was a little bit of a of a downer when watching the matches. Uh, you know, and you do tell that contrast with a say a packed Euros game in Budapest or at Wembley, and you look at the Copa America and there's no fans there apart from I think just the final had fans. So yeah, I think that kind of diminished the uh, the excitement of it a little bit. Obviously, not for the Argentina fans at the end. 
Um, but yeah, hopefully we can just look forward to to a next tournament with uh, with fans in the stadium and obviously you know those lively South American fans always great to see. Finally, I guess we better give a word to uh, Lionel Messi as well. He's obviously now won an international competition with Argentina. He got player of the tournament. I think he was uh, top scorer as well. They gave it to him because he had more assists. And he today he's just signed on again with Barcelona. Obviously, never in doubt. Was never going to PSG or England, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, he just keeps on going. Yeah, no, good for him. Um, I mean, in some ways, he can be an unlikable player. With I mean, the tax dodging and all the kind of things. But in a way, it's it's hard to hate him because he just plays the game with such an infectious, I'd say, enthusiasm and just the ability to to conjure up such magic. You just have to love him. And I think you know. The only player they were saying that had, had um, the most goals, most assists, and one player of the tournament at any international tournament ever, um, which is very impressive in itself. Uh, kind of carried Argentina a little bit. Um, and yeah, I mean, he carries Barcelona week in, week out. You can't imagine the club without him. And so I'm sure they'll do whatever it takes in terms of moving heaven and earth with their wage structure to fit him in, even though it seemingly can't register new players at the moment um, but I'm sure they'll, they'll happily let go of four or five well-played players just to make sure they can keep Messi on uh, for another few years Can you understand though why Everton came here and defended so heartily? Yeah, each one decides how they want to to do the uh, to win points No, uh, you cannot say anything about this it's just the situation that we could see on the pitch It's not new for your team though is it? A lot of teams come here to Anfield and defend why didn't you manage to break them down today? We were trying, you know, but when you play with uh, small clubs, always it's, it's difficult. They play deep and they try to, to do the same. Only a month now until the Premier League kicks off. Uh, we're going to do our best to skirt around it because the Euros has just finished and we want to, you know, chill out for a bit before having to get invested again in football. But there has been a few uh, managerial reshuffles since we last published the podcast. The most high-profile one is probably... Uh, Liverpool legend Rafa Benitez becoming head coach of Everton. I think a team he once called a small club. Uh, how do you feel about that, mate, as a Liverpool fan? To be honest, it's at the risk of sounding patronising to Everton. I don't really mean it that way, but I don't think I mind too much because I understand the reasons behind it. Obviously, he has his family living in, I think, in the rural, in the general Merseyside area. I think he's got sort of kids at school there still even you can understand that instinct to want to go back into you know sort of kind of top level management really so it's hard to hold it against him so I definitely don't think that any local fans really be in the mood to kind of boo him I think it'd be interesting to see how the response is from Everton fans in the first few games see perhaps if he can bring in a few signings before then which might kind of help to uh, to win people over but yeah more, more than anything I'm just interesting to see how it does what kind of system he implements, whether he kind of does something similar to what he did at Newcastle, when he goes a bit back to what he did at perhaps Napoli or or indeed Liverpool. So yeah, I think just really looking forward to see see what he does. Um, obviously, I think there might be a bit of resentment if if they win a derby against us. <laughs> but I think apart from that, you know, just you know, happy for him. Wish him all the best, really. Other clubs, Roy Hodgson obviously retired from managing, left Crystal Palace at the end of last season. 
Patrick Vieira's coming in there now. I feel like a lot of people haven't really got a handle on what he's like as a manager. He's obviously a big mm. name. He was a great player. He, he sort of did adequately at Nice. He, he's managed New York City before that as well. Uh, I think it, like, you know, it's hard to gauge what he will do. And I think Palace might be in some trouble at the end of this season. I don't know what you think about that. They do have a lot of players whose contracts were expiring this summer. And I think in general, not surprisingly for a Hodgson side, had a lot of ageing players kind of needed a little bit of a rehaul their squad. I think they approached quite a few managers this summer from the sounds of it, who turned them down essentially because of that. It does seem like a team that's in flux. Uh, at the same time, it's an opportunity for a new manager to bring in quite a few new players. Whether Vieira's given the budget to do that, I don't know. But yeah, uh, the instinct that I have, as well as you, yeah, is that they will probably struggle this season. I'm not sure I see Vieira really outperforming what that squad can do. So if they don't strengthen it significantly, I think that could be a big problem for them. Yeah, I just hope they finish below Norwich. That's what that's what I'm thinking. I guess the most pro, high-profile one was Tottenham Hotspur finally, finally getting somebody to sign on the dotted line. Uh, they've taken Nuno Espirito Santo off of Wolves. Again, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens there because it's obviously a Tottenham team where I'm not really sure what to expect from them. Like, will they be challenging for the Champions League? Um, will they be signing every Portuguese player they can, like Wolves did? I'm not sure what they'll be hoping for. It feels like a little bit of a, not even a, I'd argue not even a sideways, but even a backwards move. I mean, you know, we did talk about how Mourinho is to some extent a waning force. Um, he's not the manager he was. Even so, I don't think moving from Mourinho, and, you know, no offence to Ryan Mason, but he's never going to get that job permanently, to Nuno, that doesn't seem like an upwards move for, for a club like Spurs. It feels like Levy's gone to other options and they've turned him down and he sort of said, you know, he's a guy with good Premier League experience. Let's bring him in. It, I must say, I imagine for Wolves fans, it's very, sorry, for Spurs fans, very difficult to be excited about that appointment. With all the rumours floating around that they'll lose Kane as well, looks like it might be a bit of a disappointing summer for them. You know, obviously things can change and they are well known for doing business at the end of windows as well. At the moment, you, you struggle to see them being able to challenge effectively for Champions League. Give it gigs it to the end of the season. Thank you for coming on, Luis, my friend. I hope, I hope you soon get over England's defeat last weekend. Thanks, Tom. Uh, a pleasure as always and helps to alleviate some of the pain. <laughs> that is good to hear. Um, thank you for listening and we will be back very soon.